Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Advisor. Today, we have my friend Charlie Stenger on with us. Charlie is the CEO of GST Specialty, Cyber Security Insurance. Charlie and I had a great conversation a few months ago, probably back at the end of 2022, talking about cyber insurance because uh, as an investment advisor, I also am licensed to do some insurance. Never sold a cyber insurance policy. Uh, as a Again, as an investment advisor, we do have some cybersecurity protocols and protections in place for our clients, but I'm really, really glad to have Charlie with me today because he's just one of those great, great guys that you just love having in your Rolodex. So Charlie, welcome. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate it. It's great to uh, connect with you here on the podcast and and Spotify. It's wonderful. Um, you know, we're old friends. So this is this is kind of a fun conversation that I, you know, I feel like we'd be having if we were at uh, Tudos or Series, you know, back in the day or, you know, yeah, sitting outside at the uh, Board of Options Exchange. So it's a pleasure to uh, to be reconnected here. Yeah, I think our first meeting was during the summer of, I'm guessing, 2010, 11, possibly. We're we, you know, we got one of those absolutely gorgeous days in Chicago. The breeze is coming off the lakefront. It was a sunny day. We were parked in some chairs across the street from the Sears Tower in that building, the Winter Garden building, where they have a lot of grass in front. And we just sat and chatted about all things options related, trading related, payment for order flow, uh, a little bit about our faith. And it was, you know, it was just really a great conversation. Yeah, amen to that. And uh, in fact, I wore a, a broker tech uh uh, vest, which might be from about that era, you know, half of my clothes are, are older than my children, as maybe you can relate. Totally. And, uh, you know, I wanted to wear it just, uh, you know, to make sure that we remembered those good old trading days. And you're right. I, I believe I was at uh, ICAP, which was a electronic trading venue and you were at Equitech and mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about some business stuff. And then we ended up getting personal. And as you know, these kind of things happen and, you know, been friends, friends ever since. And we get to catch up, unfortunately, not in person as often as we'd right. like, but here we are today. I, you know, it's, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, Joe Rogan. And so I thought, you know, we, maybe I'll send you a cigar for our next Spotify or a, <laughs> a, a whiskey or something like that. I, I would be all over that. I should, we should probably, I was thinking of doing a Spotify series where it is maybe you have a cocktail, right? A, a martini and you know, martini and marriage or bourbon and blockchain. Like, I don't know. I just, the idea of mixing, a little bit of liquor with my favorite topics is really sounds kind of exciting to me. Absolutely. That'll be our next one. I'm I'm in. Okay. So Charlie, listen, just give me, uh, give our listeners a quick rundown, a little brief synopsis of, you know, where you grew up, um, a little bit about your family life, hobbies, you know, any kind of interest and tell me how you got into financial services. You know, what, what led you to the 2010 area where we, I uh, had our first meeting. Sure. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and, after going to high school there, I went to college in the middle of uh, Missouri, University of Central Missouri, go Mules. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. I'll be on campus tomorrow, meeting with a couple of professors. And then um, I had the opportunity to get an internship on the trading floor my junior to senior year summer. And um, in fact, I'm getting the opportunity to speak in front of a finance, a finance class about that opportunity. And how I was able to land my first job in finance. And I said, you know, I, it, it was really simple. I went up there uh, over spring break and I knocked on 49 doors back in the day. Um, it was right after 9-11, but they didn't have the turnstiles up yet. So you could still get inside of all the buildings. 
Um, so I knocked on 49 doors, handed out 49 resumes and got 49 no's. And uh, so that was a good, a good entrance into sales and um, the reality situation. And uh, I came back and <clears throat> feeling slightly dejected, told my mom about the trip and she said, you know, I, I remember the library, my mom was a school teacher. She said, I remember the librarian at the uh, school, I think her her nephew said he worked on the trading floor. So she, uh, through coordinating, got me a phone interview with a floor broker at the Euro dollar interest rate option pit. So of course I knew Equitech. Uh, and it was with BTJ and Telluride. And, um, and I tell the story that BTJ, I, I remember standing in my fraternity uh, dorm room effectively. And uh, he, he asked me some really hard interview questions. They were, how tall are you? And I, I'm, I'm 5'11", but I think I played it up to about six foot. You know, he said, how fast are you? I said, really fast. How competitive are you? Well, I'm extremely competitive. Have you ever been into a fist fight? I said, you should have seen the one last weekend, right? You know, they were all <laughs> just really, yeah, you know, and exactly. No, none of the finance questions that I had studied from the, you know, the Black Shoals modeling that we had tapped into and touched on in, in finance classes. Um, none of those were hit on. It was more personality driven of what it was like to work on the trading floor. So I was excited, um, got my foot, uh, you know, my, my first day, got my feet on the floor. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. This organized chaos. Um, and I really never looked back, you know, as as you probably know, when you start in 2002, I, I know you started a little bit before that, but it was an open outcry uh, situation still, but then it quickly moved electronic. And we we both were able to experience both sides of that, where it was open outcry and electronic. And so I could tell that as as the jobs were shrinking on the trading floor, um, given my age, I wasn't going to be competing for those those jobs that were fleeting. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a there was a whole uh, lot of guys that were you know a generation older than me that weren't going to give them up, and they weren't retiring as easily anymore. And so I went to the electronic side of the of the world and I became a high frequency trading broker uh, at Advantage Futures and then uh, ICAP. And so ICAP, we were running the largest foreign exchange and uh, bond trading business in the world at the time, which was uh, later sold to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for, uh, you know, a cool eight billion dollars or wow. something. Yeah, it was it was a really good business um, to, you know, kind of put it in perspective, as you know, Bill, because. I know you came from the interest rate world. The bonds were trading. They were we were doing about 180 billion a day in turnover, uh, and then the foreign exchange was doing about 150 billion a day in turnover. And to put it in perspective, of all the 20 uh, stock exchanges in the United States, you know, both lit and dark, mm -hmm. they're doing about 220 billion a day of turnover. Um, you know, these are kind of rough numbers, but we were doing as much as all the stock exchanges with two different products. And we were covering Citadel and, and Virtu, um, a lot of the high frequency firms, and we were connecting them to the banks. And it was an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, what an education. Yes, it was. It was a blast. I, you know, sorry if I'm kind of going on and on here. Uh, mm. I'll, I'll wrap up a, a kind of a thought. So I, we found out my wife was pregnant on a Thursday. We were having a great year from a business standpoint. It was an exciting period. And I, I came in on a Monday. There was a new CEO in town, a new sheriff in town. And uh, my boss gave me some hard news that they were going to let me, myself and a, a number of us go. 
And and I thought, man, my, and I told him, my, man, my wife's pregnant. And he said, oh, this is gutting for me to, to be delivering this news. And he said, I'm, I'm next. He said, I, I, I'm not safe either. So don't think that this is because of a performance issue or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went home and, and broke the news to my wife. And I said, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Fun while it lasted. Yeah. She said, well, you've always said you wanted to own your own business. And I said, okay, I, I don't really know what I'm going to go do. And so later that day, I brought my laptop down to the Starbucks and, and uh, I didn't start the business that I own now, but I started a little consulting practice that was effectively doing headhunting for uh, small hedge funds and, and uh, banks mm -hmm. and, and finding different uh, talent. So I kind of went from, you know, being a broker on the floor and then a broker upstairs to uh, being a consultant and a headhunter. And, uh, and then as that progressed, we were expecting our second child and we ended up, uh, we brought the family back to Kansas city as this is where my wife, my wife's from the other side of the state. And I started doing work on the consulting side for insurance brokers mm -hmm. because it was, it was kind of a similar consulting process really. And I found that I loved insurance as weird as that might sound to so many people, like, how could you love insurance? I really You're a did. unicorn. You're a unicorn. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's got a reoccurring revenue stream. And for my consultant friends out here that might be listening, they all get it. It's you know, January 1st, you start at zero. Mm -hmm. A financial advisor has a reoccurring revenue stream. Yeah. You're building the book of business. For sure. And I really enjoyed that that aspect. So um, you know, I I got into the insurance business through that consulting process and uh, started GST Specialty, which is a niche wholesaler. The difference between a wholesaler and a retailer on insurance is a retail insurance agent typically sells directly to the end client. Mm -hmm. The end client is gonna be a business or you know uh, your home and auto insurance agent, your business insurance agent. A wholesaler sits between that retailer and a specialty carrier. So, when a retailer comes into a really hard to place cyber insurance deal, they call me and I end up uh, explaining how we're going to get the deal done and I navigate that process. But why cyber insurance, cybersecurity insurance, Charlie? Why not just do something old school? You know, you work for farmers insurance, State Farm, uh, some other brokerage firm where you are just doing long term care, term insurance, property and casualty. Like, why? What was it that, like, why cyber? And was it just part of your online belief that things were going to still be just like the trading floor went from in person to electronic trading? Cyber security was, I mean, maybe just becoming a thing. I'm not even like the last two or three years is blown up, but it was, it was just all talk before it didn't seem to be so legitimate and so common uh, cyber attacks as they are today. It's a, it's a great question. And it's funny you ask that because I brought this up to a CEO of a retail insurance agent agency, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago. I said, hey, what do you think about acquiring a cyber insurance business? We were talking about different agencies to acquire. And there was, there was a cyber insurance agency in town that I was speaking with. And they said, nah, there's no money in it. And that's right. The time, there really wasn't. There yeah. were, the policies were quite cheap. Um, but I said, 
No, I just, I feel like I've seen this, I've seen this happen before mm -hmm. where it goes from, we don't really care about this, you know, this electronic trading stuff to all of a sudden, almost all the trading is done electronically. And I thought the data, the data problem is going to continue to grow. So I didn't jump right into it, right as I, as I saw, as I, as I saw to start to develop, I had to try my hat at some other things. I, I sold some long-term care. I sold some life insurance policies and I wrote some nursing home business and work comp and general liability. Then I, I, I wrote some directors and officers and professional liability. And I started to notice this, this propensity of cyber breaches and insurance policies starting to cost a lot more money. I also noticed that my competition on the retail side wasn't uh, comfortable talking about technology, talking about what multi-factor authentication means and what is EDR and uh, what are these technology terms. And, you know, just if you if you ended up with my experience, that wasn't scary. Those words meant something to me. Mm -hmm. So I had the idea and with the support of my lovely bride uh, and encouragement from her to say, I could start a wholesale business that sits in between the retailer and the specialty carrier and offers these retail agents some information and some some guidance on how to close a deal because that's what they're trying to do the mm -hmm. retailer doesn't want to feel silly maybe i'll use the word stupid in front of their client if they start talking about what cyber insurance is and then the client asks some second and third level questions and they start to feel uneasy they want to be able to lean on a partner and say hey charlie Tell him what you told me earlier. Why is this important? And then I'm happy to carry the ball and uh, and help them close that aspect of the of the business. So just refresh my memory. What is DDR? I, I know what two-factor authentication is, but what's a DDR? Well, EDR would be endpoint detection and response. E EDR. Okay, got it. EDR, yeah. Or MDR would be managed detection and response. And they're very similar. Um, you know, they're kind of different flavors of the same thing. Um, you know, a, a techie might get on here and... and say that they're different, but they're, you know, for, for purposes of this conversation, they're very similar. And so what that's going to do is you would have a, uh, you know, something like Silence or CrowdStrike or Sentinel-1 deployed onto the endpoint. An endpoint is a computer, uh, a cell phone, a server. And mm -hmm. so when that server uh, or computer ends up experiencing a breach, they can they can contain it right there at that endpoint. They should they can shut that endpoint down to try to trap the the attack right, right there, as opposed to not knowing where it's going to live on the on the system and then it, it being able to proliferate. So what is uh so so tell me okay I know I know why you got into the business I can I got that that trail of of crumbs so to speak that but like what is what is your day like today what. How are how are you connecting with wholesale? Well, you're yourself a wholesaler. How are you being a liaison? You're like the man in the middle. I mean, looking for uh, insurance companies to, that sell the retail side that are more client facing, and then you're working with the underwriters and the people that are providing the insurance, right? I mean, that, do I understand that correctly? Yes, sir. That's right. Um, so I'll use an example. Uh, yesterday, uh, one of my one of my clients is a is a top ten broker, um, locked in. They're a huge company here in town, and they're a competitor to an Aon, a Gallagher, a Marsh, mm -hmm. uh, the largest privately owned. Huge. Huge, yeah. They, I, I think they have 14,000 insurance professionals that work for them globally. 
And they certainly have a team of cyber insurance professionals that are very well equipped to do this job. And, you know, one might ask, well, why in the heck would Lockton with all those cyber professionals ever want to use a person like GST Specialty to help navigate this? And I, there's, there's a few reasons outside of the fact that, you know, I've got a nice relationship with the producer and some of the team over there. I'm able to navigate the technology speak at a pretty granular level. I take cybersecurity courses still on the weekends. I prepared for the call for a number of hours. They brought me into a situation where, uh, unfortunately, one of their clients who's in 19 countries and uh, multi, you know, they're over, over a billion in revenue, they did experience a breach. And so we were doing the post breach, uh oh, what actually happened phone call. And they, they bring me in to say, do we have this stuff figured out now? The, the technology has been, um, the technology has been improved. And mm -hmm. so now I'm going to help navigate that story going back into underwriting to show them here's where they were last year. When we went into underwriting, they did experience a breach. Here's what those ramifications are moving forward. Here's what they're doing to mitigate that problem. Mm -hmm. You know, they deploy Sentinel one, Sentinel one's a top end, you know, Lexus of EDR systems uh, through a, another, a REIT, which is a, um, an, a managed service provider. So it's a very complicated type of thing that they're working on. So we need to package that story and explain it to the carriers so that they are comfortable as we go through this renewal process. So the client doesn't get denied because if the right. client gets denied because of a loss, now they're, they're, they don't get to transfer any of that risk. So how is it that when I am made aware of cybersecurity breaches, seems to be months go by, two, three, four months before it's admitted publicly. Is that just part of the due diligence process that it takes uh, the insurance company is saying, hey, we don't talk about that yet until we get this? Is it a legal issue where attorneys are getting in or the FBI is trying to figure out who the bad actors are? Is it just a unwillingness by the company to disclose cybersecurity breaches because of what it might do to the bottom line? Or is it maybe a little bit of everything? I'm just kind of surprised like, oh yeah, today's uh, March 30th. We had a breach on December 21st of 2022. And like, now I'm hearing about it? Like, what's up with that? It's a really good question, a good point. I think there's a few things to hit on. Um, first, there was an article in the journal, I believe in December, that there's new legislation out that they're going to require publicly traded companies to disclose a breach within, it was like 72 hours. Now, we all kind of started to laugh about this because the average uh, time that it takes for a company to realize that there's a breach is about 96 days. Yeah, I mean, I, that makes sense to me. That makes but, sense to me. The bad actors sit inside your environment for a long time, gathering as much data as they can, figuring out where the open doors are. And so many times, unless you have uh, Sentinel One or one of these programs deployed, you might not really fully be aware of what's going on. The other thing is, uh, I spoke with a lawyer this week who handles cybersecurity uh, breaches. That's, that's his job. I said, what are you working on today? He said, man, we've got a nightmare of a situation. There's, there's a regional bank within our region with many locations, and they had a breach. 
all locations are offline. None of them except for one can access the main computing system. Uh, they don't know how to message this to the public right now, post Silicon Valley Bank. Right. Um, is there, you know, is our, are our funds safe? Oh, yes, they are. What's my balance? I can't tell you. Like, this is a nightmare. If this would have happened a month ago, it wouldn't have felt like such a nightmare mm -hmm. situation because people wouldn't have thought that there would have been a problem with regional banks, right? You know, we didn't think that there was any sort of issue. So now uh, the security breach has really made this uncomfortable for this regional bank. Now they're not a public bank, so they don't have to disclose this within a certain time frame. But th that's what they're trying to figure out this week is like that the the uh the lawyers are saying be careful with how you put this out to pr pr right. company how do you plan on navigating the, these these conversations bank how do you you know feel about this conversation being spoken about in this light so it's it's a tricky situation when you're going through that as you could imagine gosh 72 hours i mean I, like you said i can't even imagine you knowing that you've been breached for like you said the number of days 96 days or something that you had mentioned wow that's that's, That's right. Crazy. So what is the what does a small business owner do? I mean, I'm pretty much a one owner entity, as as you are, as almost all of my clients are small business owners and individual people. What what do they do? I mean, we we hear that the antivirus programs that we pay hundreds of dollars a year for are really worthless. It's a mental, emotional help. They don't really do anything in the back end. Malware's programs like I don't even know. I, I would like to take another step up or two in my cybersecurity protection here at home, but I'm just not quite. It seems like everything is you have to be a large enterprise user in order to take advantage of that. Um, it it certainly helps to be a large enterprise user because you can you can afford the uh, the heavy cost because you know these these EDR programs are extremely expensive. Hiring a managed service provider, a managed service security provider to monitor your systems. That doesn't make sense for a one-man band. Um, there are things that you can do. You can transfer risk with cyber insurance mm -hmm. for a small business. Um, those policies aren't terribly egregious, you know, call it maybe a hundred bucks a month, right? So, you know, that if, if that helps you sleep at night, we could probably find a policy for you or for a, you know, a, a, a company like yours for a reasonably priced amount. Right. Other things that you can do, you can keep your computer backed up offline through, you know, maybe a, an external hard drive. You can back your systems up once a week, unplug your external hard drive. Now, if you have a breach, you get the blue screen of death. You can't log on to your system, right? You go, what do you do? Death, yes. You know, so you could, oh, well, hey, I got my, my external hard drive. I can at least gather my old documents there. Charlie, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I recently wrote a book and uploaded it to Amazon this uh, at the end of last week. And it's an essential guide for estate planning professionals on how to recover cryptocurrency. And the reason why I was inspired to write this book is because of all the blue screen of deaths I had received since the 80s when I got my first computer, I was never, ever for 20 years successfully able to fully recover any one of my desktop computers. I had tape backups, I had software programs, I had multiple three and a half inch floppy disks. I had even an external um, like cloud service, I guess you could say, store my data. 
But when it comes down to it, losing a computer and then having to buy a new one at the store or buying a new hard drive and wiping it clean is an incredibly time-consuming process, even today after having computers for 40 years, for the most part. It's still not clean. And in the decentralized world, where there's no one call, there's no customer service desk, there's no, no one needs your death certificate or your insurance certificate. It's gone if you don't have the necessary things in place. So I just had to laugh at the blue screen of death because I think about that all the time. Well, I think your book, you you know, we should continue to talk about that because what you're doing is really a good service for a lot of people that are going to have to navigate some tricky situations. Of course, you would hope that they they read your book before there's a, a tragedy in the family. Um, you know, we unfortunately had to uh, go to a funeral today or a celebration of life for Craig Metzler, RIP. He was a wonderful uh, father, grandfather, and, you know, he lived a, a full life. Made, you know, he made it till 74, so not quite as long as I'm sure his children would have liked it, but he certainly had a great life. But if you take somebody like him who may have, uh, cryptocurrency that could be, and I don't know that he does, but, right. um, you know, you could see like, Oh my gosh, like now what now the kids are mourning and they're going through all the different processes and they get onto the Schwab account and they go, didn't dad have some Bitcoin? And you're like, where well, is it? How do we find yeah. it? And yeah, it was totally. up here. Right. Um, so I think that you've got a nice, uh, a nice offering for many people that are Bitcoin enthusiasts and, and users to be able to follow that. And also, I'm sure for a lot of estate planning attorneys, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. I bet you have a like a almost a cookbook that they could follow. Is that right? Well, I would say I call it the essential guide because it's just I'm kind of like the bare minimum what a financial planner or an estate planning attorney should know. So, I, you know, I did a presentation at Harper College for maybe 20 or 25 estate planning attorneys. And they were there surprisingly because, not because they themselves originated this organic interest in cryptocurrency. It was because they're already receiving inbound conversations and questions from their clients saying, hey, I own Bitcoin. How do I, like, how should I share this information with you so that if I die, my heirs can get it? Or my, 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 you know, my husband and I split up and I think he's hiding his vast fortune in, in crypto somewhere. Like, and I don't, I, how do we get that? So we can go on as part of the joint, the marital product, uh, marital property, you know, at, during the divorce. So, wow. I mean, that was, that was what brought people to the presentation. Now, have I been able to really get into the world of estate planning attorneys? No, not yet, but I hope to, I hope to do presentations. I hope to get in front of trade organizations. That's kind of why I wrote the book, but I want to, I want, this is this, this podcast is about you though. So let's get back to, and I appreciate you asking me about my, my business. I really do, Charlie. That's great. So I, so tell me like where, not only like where are you at right now in terms of your connections, your network, you know, how you're building things, but what do you see for Charlie? What do you see for cyber security insurance going forward? And I'm just going to end with this is that I really had a great conversation in a podcast with the former FBI agent. It was a, special agent, forensic accountant, who does a lot of cybersecurity negotiating. I guess that would be the best way of saying it, where these people in Eastern Bloc countries, South America and Africa, they they have they have beautiful shared office space with health clubs 
and draft beer and coffee and all the amenities that you could possibly ask for. And all they do is try to zing you with, with ransomware and cyber, you know, cybersecurity crimes. It's a full-time job. It's like going to a shopping mall and just having hundreds of bosses, offices of people just doing this for a living. And they make bank because they take their money generally in Bitcoin. So where do you see this whole thing going? Wow. So yeah, it's it's a multi-billion dollar, uh, I guess, industry, if we think of it that way. Uh, you know, the, the um, hacking industry, they, there's billions of dollars made on this every year. In fact, um, part of the monies that were paid out for this particular, it, and it was a small time breach. It was, they paid 300,000 of Bitcoin as the ransom. So that's, that'd be that'd be tough if it's, you know, you or I to stomach, you know, $300,000 payment for a billion dollar revenue organization. It wasn't comfortable. They didn't want to make the payment, but it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to shut them down. Right. Now, <clears throat> 6,000 of it was to pay of a company probably I, I know some ex traders in Chicago that procure Bitcoin for these situations. They mm -hmm. literally go out and acquire the $300,000 of Bitcoin and, you know, exchange for cash and they take a fee, you know, they take whatever that would have been probably 2%, um, you know, as a transaction fee to help facilitate that payment. So it's a big business. I don't believe that cyber insurance is going anywhere. Cybersecurity certainly isn't going anywhere. There's millions of cybersecurity jobs open right now. Um, I'm an advisor to Leading Edge Skills, which is a, a cybersecurity course that you know I've taken the course online. Um, it's wonderful. There's there was uh, students from all over the world, Africa, India, you know Ghana, mm -hmm. in, uh, India, Pakistan. Um, Venezuela, North uh, North America, United States, et cetera. So students from all over the world, we take this course, we, we share uh, ideas and examples, and then professors who are cybersecurity professionals are actually teaching you kind of how to be like a low-level hacker, um, mm -hmm. but in a good way, right? You know, on the on the the blue team. A white hat, a white hat. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, not not somebody that's, you know, they're not training people. just lost you. Charlie, I think you froze there. Hello? So, all right, we're, Charlie, you're back with us. So the the course teaches you how to be a benevolent hacker, I guess you could say. That's right. And it's it's really to help. There's many uh, kids that and, and students that are taking this course that are trying to get into cybersecurity because there's millions of cybersecurity jobs open today. Uh, these large organizations are trying to get this talent onto their squad. However, just having book talent or scholastic talent isn't always what these places need. They need somebody that's actually launched a virtual machine and gone onto the dark web and can figure out what usernames and passwords have actually been leaked from their organization. Right. right? So um, cybersecurity is not going anywhere. Cyber insurance if you recall a couple months ago, the CEO of Zurich, which is one of the largest insurance companies in the world, said cyber insurance cannot go on if in today's in today's form. He's saying it's it's not going to exist like it does today moving forward. And so many people have asked me, 
what do you think? This is, you know, you're betting your, your uh, business on cyber insurance. And I would say, I understand where he's coming from. We're not going to be able to insure companies that aren't taking cybersecurity seriously. If you're taking cybersecurity seriously, we're going to be able to insure your company. Mm-hmm. And I'll use an example. If you and I were to go acquire, uh, a, you know, you and I are a real estate, uh, a REIT, and we're going to go buy a, a building in downtown Chicago, and it's a $100 million building. And we were going to get insurance on that $100 million building. Travelers or Zurich or one of these carriers would say, are there locks on the door? Is there sprinkler systems? Is it aluminum wire or copper wiring? Uh, is right? They would ask us a series of these questions. They would underwrite it. We would answer those questions, but they wouldn't necessarily take our word for it because there's a hundred million bucks on the line. So they're going to actually send a physical human onto campus and to investigate. And they're going to tug at the front door and they're going to go, there's no locks on this door. They don't have any fire extinguishers or a fire system. They don't, they have aluminum wiring, not copper wiring. This thing is not worth our time. It's not worth our risk, right? Because a catastrophic loss is a hundred million dollars on this one. So that's, what's going to occur moving forward. And they're starting, they're starting to get better at it, at underwriting these risks by doing external scanning, but it's going to continue to go further because we're going to have to drill down and to say, this is what this team is doing. This is what this team plans on doing over the next 12, 18 months with here's their technology roadmap. And that's that, those are the things that we're adding value to our retail insurance agents and our ultimately end insureds and the carrier. Do you ever envision a time where the actual insurance company slash underwriter will try to breach a company using the white hat tricks mm-hmm. as part of their, as part of their due diligence? Like I'm going to try to bust into this billion dollar company. There are my guys and you try to attack them. You try to get, you know, and see how easy you can break in. Or is that just well, that illegal? It's illegal. If the company doesn't know you're doing it, you can get permission to do what's called uh, a vulnerability scan mm-hmm. or um, we can do, we can do like ongoing monitoring. Um, so they're doing these external scans right now. I could run a scan on your website or any any company website, and I can figure out if there's a RDP port. Um, and I can't recall what RDP stands stands off the top of my head, uh, but there's certain things that are going to be open. Mm-hmm. And if, if there if those things flash that they're open, I have one right now that's uh, we couldn't get a local government in Indiana insurance, and I've I've been going back and forth with the. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I've been going back and forth with the uh, with the broker on it, and she said, "Hey, you know, the the client said that that it's an old web address that is popping up on the scan, and it very well could be, but it, all the carriers denied to give them coverage. So, whose problem is it? It's the it's the government's problem. We need to figure out that local that we need to solve that for them so they can actually transfer wow. risk, and." we have to work alongside their managed service provider to, to help them figure it out. So we, we highlight this with an external scan. All the carriers are running them right now. We point out what the issue is and we say, Hey, if you can solve this issue and report back to us what you've done to mitigate that problem, or if you, if it is in fact just a dead website, 
you have to just give us some documentation that 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 is you know not not working anymore or what have you and um but yet the ongoing penetration tests and vulnerability scanning is something that's very critical and those penetration tests are what the that uh blue you know that red team the red team would be a on the white you know white hat the red team tries to get in the blue team tries to defend so your blue team is the internal team that's trying to defend against the hack. Man, would I like to watch that in real time? Like if you ever, if you, if there's this, if there's this control room that is actually doing this, please invite me down because I want to see the red attack the blue. I want to see blue defend. Like how incredibly interesting would that be? So I'll give a shout out to some guys called uh, Redacted right now. They're all former NSA um uh employees mo many of them and we've been talking about putting together a hundred thousand dollar challenge and uh apparently they ran this in the past where um we can get a hundred grand out of your bank account you know mr mr corporation and they say there's right. no chance and it's like okay give us give us 48 hours right and and then you know within 48 hours they have the hundred thousand sitting in the in the bank account unbelievable we can hit we can hit send do you want our, do you want our services or not you know and that's kind of the the gist is because these folks are so talented yeah. at hacking and um in fact they they told me they said well we can go on offense and i said what do you mean go on offense they said well we can figure out uh if you're having a, a problem with some hackers a hacking group is continuously hitting you up we can go find them and i said find them yeah, I'm glad. I'm really glad you brought that up, Charlie. Because again, um, trying to be a faith-based person, I don't like to think about vengeance or revenge. But then there's an, a my Italian heritage is like, okay, you hit me, I'm going to hit you. I but I think about that a lot. Okay, more than I more than I should. So the question is, if as a small business owner, somebody tried to attack me with a cybersecurity issue, if could I could I be like, okay. I'm going to download some free stuff on the dark web and I'm going to respond to your email that you tried to hook me with saying, yeah, here's my whatever. And like, give them a virus. Like, am I, am I allowed to send ransomware to people that have, 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 have hit me? Allowed would be probably the, the short answer is no, you're not allowed to do that legally. Um, right. Just like if somebody pushed you, on the subway platform, you're not allowed to legally push them back. Um, yeah, I mean about that. It's a moral dilemma. <laughs> if you're defending yourself, there's one thing, right? You know, yeah. but if you're, you know, if you get pushed and you're not injured, and now you push somebody back and they fall onto the train track and they get run over by the subway, that's you're not allowed to do that. Thank you for being my guardian angel here, Charlie. I appreciate that. We yeah we we want to we want to keep everyone all of us out of jail. Yeah. Um, now, what this company will do though is they'll they'll and it's expensive, right? They'll go back and figure out where this person is that's attacking you. I said, what, what do you mean where they are? Like in because most of these attacks are coming from Russia, Ukraine, North Korea, Iran, and China. That's where the bulk of these attacks are coming from. And we have heat maps of this stuff. This is not uh, a political conversation. This is just reporting the news. Um, and. I'd say, well, so we're, you're going to go find them in St. Petersburg? They're like, oh, yeah, we'll know which side of the house they're sitting on. And I'm like, wow. So, like, what are you going to do with them? <laughs> that is scary, but cool at the same time.
Yeah, they said we report them to the authorities, Charlie. We don't we don't go in there and you know like a James Bond movie and right. you know. But I hear most of it is state sponsored anyhow, so it's not like you're going to get anywhere with the local government. Apparently, that's the rumor on this end. Yes. Now we don't. We on the insurance side do not want to hear that it's state sponsored, because then it could be an act of terrorism and and the policy could be declined. Um, so we don't like that. What we would argue is, if that's a state sponsored um, act, that's an act of war. An act of war, an act of terrorism can be declined. Okay. And so. Did Russia declare war with us? Maybe sponsored is a strong word. Maybe it's a wink, wink, nod, nod, look the other way. Like state tolerated perhaps might be a better word. Right. We And one of my fraternity brothers uh, works at the NSA and his, his, to, his topic is Russia. Like that's like who he looks after. And so he's been very busy the last couple of years. And... He said they just they play by a different set of rules mm-hmm. than we do. So it's hard for us to, I think, as Americans, I, you know, I'm an American that's traveled abroad. I've I've lived in uh, in Western Europe uh, for a period of five months. So I've had some experience living in other, you know, another country and and getting exposed to other rules. Mm-hmm. But I haven't ever lived in or traveled to Russia. I've traveled to some Eastern Bloc countries and you can tell that they're um, they're different uh because of the culture but mm-hmm. i haven't ever i haven't ever experienced life in russia right. but from what i understand it's a different it's a different set of rules than what you and i are accustomed to interesting all right so since this is the blockchain advisor podcast i, I do want to touch on something that you and i said a little bit before the podcast was recorded and that is where do you see blockchain in cyber security insurance and cyber insurance like what what role do you believe blockchain is going to play in all this well i think that you know blockchain is obviously a big it's like saying healthcare right you know blockchain is a really big word and it means a lot of different things i think if we kind of chunk it down into digital assets um dig, banks i insure a digital bank um, out of Texas. And so we have a carrier that was willing to write that. Wow. Right. We've excluded some things out of the coverage. If there was, if there was, uh, certain crypto related losses, there's, there's going to be certain exclusions, but if there was a breach on their technology and it shut their bank down and they, you know, had to, they, they, their systems were down, they were out of, you know, they had an operating loss. Mm-hmm. Certain things we we've transferred risk for that. So we do have uh, carriers still to this day that are willing to write crypto or digital banks. Blockchain as a technology, I think, could improve how uh, insurance contracts can be uh, stored and kept and and monitored. And I think that that would be helpful. Um, you know. Over time, I think that you know blockchain is going to be a really good tool for insurance, uh, the insurance industry to leverage. Yeah, I mean, I've again being a very light insurance uh, independent producer, there are emails that I receive on where digital insurance is going. All from, you know, I have a GPS on my car. You've got GPS in your car. We have cameras at every intersection. They can actually kind of watch how the you know, there's there's devices in the uh, onboard database 
you know, by your, your legs, by the steering wheel, these programs can tell your, how your speed, weather conditions, brake condition of your brakes, everything. And they can almost, I think, get to the point where they could settle and pay a claim while you're still waiting for the police to come and tow your car. Like that's where I think that this is eventually going to go. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Yeah, blockchain is really, I, I kind of taken my foot off the gas with that. I, I should be following up a little bit more on the insurance side, but the efficiencies that are permitted. And actually the thing that was really interesting is I went to Caitlin Long. It's the first time I ever saw her in a presentation. Was it an insurance event in Chicago, like 2017? She was fabulous. Uh, but from the, from the one day seminar, they had said, listen, insurance companies have billions of dollars that are like held in reserve to pay claims. There's also a lot of counterparty risk as money is flowing around the globe. But to be able to use blockchain type of settlement where, okay, so I owe you, you owe me, Zurich owes them, you know, and we're going to have all this, all this risk is going to, we're going to settle up all our claims like at midnight tonight, right? Instead of having to re-roll and re-use over-the-counter uh, desks to do the bonds or the, you know, short-term notes or all the investments behind the insurance company, you know, annuities and insurance actual policy. So I'm not kind of doing it justice, but there are a lot of big banks and reinsurers that have derivatives on the books with each other and they all pose counterparty risk with each other. But if it's on a blockchain device, you can free up those assets and use them for investment and use them for whatever you want, right? Because if they're locked up in a smart contract, you don't have to worry about a counterparty risk. So there's billions of dollars potentially that can be saved in the insurance world with blockchain technology. Huh. That's a really interesting discussion. Um, I know Caitlin Long. I was fortunate to have a meeting with her in a WeWork uh, on a, you know on Wall Street a couple of years ago. She was, she was with uh, before. She's at Custodia Bank now. I think Custodia Bank now. Mm -hmm. Now that she's the but it, before it was maybe symphony or something like that i can't remember where she was at before um so i <clears throat> i was fortunate to have a, a meeting with her and she sure is a smart person i from memory i think she has a law degree from harvard so mm -hmm. certainly well educated and she's all over the news right now talking about um, uh, regulatory matters as it relates to digital banks so i've been following her on my linkedin feed same yeah she's got some good stuff out there right now um, and she's she bridges uh, finance and legal in a very unique way. I think there's not many people that have that sort of like in-depth knowledge that she does. And what you're talking about with unlocking all those uh, assets to be able to be uh, reinvested, I think that that is going to be helpful for a lot of these insurance companies. And the counterparty risk is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a huge issue just with with our normal payments, right? You know, I mean, that's one of the big one of the biggest things that a cyber insurance policy is is uh, covering is uh, what we'll call social engineering. Mm -hmm. I you know I send you a wire transfer for a payment because you're doing a service for me. Uh, you know, you're a you're a vendor that sells me light bulbs, and you sell me fifty thousand light bulbs or dollars worth of light bulbs. And uh, I pay you the invoice on Tuesday. And on next Tuesday, you call me up and say, hey, Charlie, I, you know, I'm not trying to be a bear, but you told me you were going to send that invoice. And I really, I, you know, I need that money because, you know, we're a small business and 50K is a lot of money to us. 
I'm like, Bill, I paid you that money. I paid it last Tuesday. I got confirmation email right here. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, I don't see it in my account. Uh-oh, this is happening every single day. It's happening right now yeah. where a, a small business, they get hacked. There's a, there's a hacker living within the environment. They change a little wire transfer instructions. The person at the uh, sending the sending the, the the funds, they don't catch it. Those funds get sent. I mean, if we could solve for that issue, that makes that makes the insurance policy tremendously uh, less costly. Yeah, yeah. They're they're very creative and they're getting better and better, from what I hear. Oh yeah, they're like machine learning. Every time they have a failure, they use that as a learning tool to step up their game. Absolutely, and this is the, right now is a is a great time to be very aware that the hackers are out because of tax season. Tax season, um, mm-hmm. they're always you know sending little you know your IRS payment is due. Use this payment link. Um, the uh, the fact that the Silicon Valley Bank Signature Bank there's a several bank failures, so people are changing bank instructions right now. This is the time to pick up the phone. Don't trust those change of bank instructions. Wow. Make sure that you're having a conversation with a person. Uh, you know, if it's a $50 Venmo and it goes to the wrong person, yeah, you're probably not going to be too upset. But if you send five grand or something to the wrong person, I'm not happy if I lose 5,000 yeah, if I sure. send it to the wrong person. With you. All right. So, Charlie, listen, uh, any, anything else you want to talk about? We're kind of, uh, we're at the end of an hour here. Let's, um, you know, feel free to tell people how to get in touch with you. You know, what would even potentially be a good client or a contact for you uh, or, or anything else you'd like to discuss in, in the last couple of minutes here. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time and let me uh, come on to your podcast. It's been a pleasure. If if uh, people want to get a hold of me, they can hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Charlie Stanger on LinkedIn, or they can email me at uh, charlie at GST specialty. That's G as in great, S is in Sam, T is in tango, and then the word specialty spelled out, dot com. Uh, for the people that I really enjoy connecting with are retail insurance agents, uh, those folks that are out selling insurance to the end clients, uh, managed service providers. If you're a, if you're, you know, the people that are protecting, you know, the, the blinking lights of the, the computer industry, I, I help out your clients too. And then if any of those retail insurance agents or uh, insureds have gotten a hack, and they're, they need to understand how to navigate a tricky situation. I'm not scared of them. Those things we can we can navigate together. And I certainly would appreciate a referral or uh, or anyone's business. And, and, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, listen, Charlie, again, thank you for, for being with me. Uh, let's do this again in a few more months. I want to stay in touch with what you're doing because I think you're doing great work. And, you know, you're just you're a good guy. You're one of the good guys. So one of the white hats. So let's let's stay in touch. Thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate it. You too. Sure.